0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, we are in our ninth week of John's Gospel, so if you haven't yet turned, if you want to turn to John chapter 2, uh, yeah, week number 9, we're in John chapter 2 now. And um, we come to a really important moment, a really important movement in John's Gospel. It's the first time that we see Jesus using his divine power to do something miraculous. And it's not just any miracle. He's not healing somebody, he's not driving out a demon. The way that Jesus demonstrates his power here, his divine power here, is by extending a party. Jesus was at a wedding. And they had run out of wine, and and weddings back in those days, they would generally last about a week, and and this meant the fact that they had run out of wine, it meant that the wedding was now virtually over. But Jesus turns the water into wine, and the show goes on. And in doing so, Jesus brings joy to the people who were there. This passage is all about joy. Jesus' first miracle is that he brings joy joy. We know this because uh, when the Bible talks about wine, when consumed properly, appropriately, is a symbol. Wine is a symbol for joy. And Jesus provides a lot of joy at this party. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word. Father, my prayer is that you would increase and that I would decrease today, Lord. That you would be glorified, that we would get a taste of your glory, and that we would be overwhelmed with just how wonderful you are, Lord. We ask, Holy Spirit, that by your word today, you would give us, again, fresh insight, fresh vision, fresh just feelings, Lord, that you would impress our feelings, Lord, with your love. Would impress our, you would impress our feelings and our emotions today, Lord, with your wonder and your beauty and your, the joy that we can find in you, Lord. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reside with us today as we open your word, Lord, that you would communicate your goodness to us, Father. Amen. A few weeks ago, um, it was a Sunday afternoon, three Sundays ago, it was the afternoon, maybe about four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and Kirsty and I and the kids, we we went down to, we went to Maloolaba, and we had just one of the most wonderful, pleasant afternoons that we've had before. It was just fantastic. We went for a bit of a walk around Point Cartwright, Um, it was was lovely, the sky was clear, it was a beautiful day. Lots of people out walking their dogs, which meant Noah got to pat a lot of dogs, so she was really, really happy. Um, the, the, the sun was just starting to warm up, like it was like the first hints of summer, like summer's just around the corner. Uh, the, the water was fresh and crisp, we didn't swim, but we stuck our feet in, it was wonderful. And then we went and got some fish and chips, and we sat on the beach eating fish and chips, watching the sun go down over Malolaba, and it was just fantastic. It was one of those days where we just sat there and went, wow, thank thank you, God. This is just lovely. It was joy. It was just wonderful joy. It was a gift from God to, to spend that time together enjoying just the smells and the, and the tastes and the, the beautiful scenery and the sounds of the waves and everything. It was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. When was a time that you experienced joy? Whether whether it's joy like that, it might be the joy of something else, an achievement, a particular day, a, a process. The beginning of something, maybe it's the end of something, but a time when you experienced joy. Here's the thing, God wants us to experience joy. Our capacity, our ability to experience joy is a design feature that God came up with. God, like the fact that we can enjoy something—that was God's idea. Like how good is joy? God, God's idea was that we would experience that. We would experience joy, and not just any joy. He wants us to experience the experience—the highest and the deepest, and the most robust joy. And He's so intent about that that He paid the highest price for us to have that. He wants us to find our deepest joy in Him. That's what this passage is all about. And the joy comes not from His abundant provision of good wine, but because of His provision of Himself. In Jesus is the best joy. In Jesus is the most joy. The Bible tells us that Jesus actually was full of joy. In Hebrews 1, uh, the writer quotes Psalm 45 and then applies it to Jesus and says of him, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. He has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. In other words, Jesus was the happiest guy around. Jesus was full of joy. And the reason for it, at least what it gives us here, is that it's because Jesus loved righteousness. How wild is that? You have loved righteousness. You've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God's made you so happy. He anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. That's actually a really important key for understanding this wedding today. I understand this wedding that Jesus was at, that is about loving righteousness. We're told that Jesus attended this wedding on the third day. And if you go back and you count it up from, if you go back really to Jesus' first day of ministry and uh, when John starts recording this narrative, uh, when the Jews uh, send a delegation out from Jerusalem to go and find um, John the Baptist and find out what he's all about, if we call that day one, this here, this wedding, is actually day seven. It's the third day after the last recorded incident. And in the same way... That the, so we're looking at the, the, the last day of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And in the same way that the last day of creation was this day of joy-filled rest, here too, John, we think, has put this together to say, hey, this is the day that Jesus brings joy at this wedding. John, John's kind of matching it up. And that's not a far stretch to, to think of when we think of how many uh, references John has already made back to the story of creation. And what's important about this passage as well is that it comes, right, it comes right at the end of this. In verse 11, it says that Jesus did the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. Uh, something we could quickly say there is that John seems to prefer this word signs rather than the word miracles. And, and the guess is that it's because a, a sign never really points to itself. In John, the signs always point to a deeper reality. The, the miracles and the, and the acts of divine power that we see Jesus do, are always, we've always got to understand them on, on a couple of different levels. But it says here, this is the, what I think is important, that he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now let's just remember, we're going to keep coming back to this, John chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, this is why I wrote this, it's so that we would, what? Believe. We, we've got to, I hope by the end of this series, we will have John 20, 31 memorized as a church, that John wrote this so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life. This is when the disciples first believed, when they saw the sign that Jesus did the shine that Jesus performed and they saw when they saw his glory. We've been talking about glory. That we need our eyes opened up to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We need to see Jesus' glory, his beauty, his magnificence. Because if we don't see that, we, we won't believe in him. Like if you don't if you don't believe, you don't see that Jesus is, Jesus is far better than anything else that you've got going on in your life. He will be nothing more than a, a helpful addition to what you do think is the most important thing in your life. And if that's all he is, he won't, he won't accept that. He's king or he's nothing. And so, this is the miracle, this is the sign that his disciples experience, and they experience his glory for the first time. They see his glory and they believed. So I've got three points today, three points that I think is going to help us understand uh, the deeper realities of this passage. Um, The first point is this, that the joy that is found in the world is not enough. Second point is the joy that is found in religion is not strong enough. And that second point, actually, I'm going to take that from the bottom, from the end of the passage. And then the third point is that only Jesus can give us true joy. So we're going to look at the first part of the passage first. Then we're going to look at the third part of the passage second. And then for the last part of today's message, we're going to come back to that really confusing conversation that Jesus has with his mother right in the middle of it. So, point number one, the joy that is found in the world is not enough. It has a limit. Jesus and his new band of disciples arrive at this wedding. And uh, when they get there, they discover that the, the wedding has run out of wine. And not only is this a moment of extreme social embarrassment for the groom, th- like this won't be forgotten in Cana for a long time. This is a serious thing to run out of wine. Uh, this is actually, like it's embarrassing, but it's also a massive logistical problem. Like they didn't have like a Dan Murphy's down the road where they could just pop down and pick up some more wine. Th- that wasn't an option. This, was, this is basically the end of the party. They can't just duck to the store. There aren't many solutions to this problem. And so John is uh, showing us that, there's, that Jesus is always operating on more than one level. You see, the, the fact that they've run out of wine, the, the truth that underwrites this story is the fact that, in the same way that the wine had run out at this party, the joy that is found in this world will also run out. There is a limit, there, there is a cap. A limit to how much joy that we will find in this world, in the things of this world, and people. There's a limit. There is no shortage of stories of people who have made it to the top. The people who have reached the absolute apex of their field and they have access to absolutely everything and yet their lives are fraught with tragedy and controversy and sadness, all from the dissatisfaction in their treasure. They've reached the summit, but they've found themselves wanting. Friends, no amount of material possessions, no amount of money, no amount of friends, no amount of interesting or life-changing experiences, no amount of knowledge, no amount of no amount of fame or influence or social standing, no amount of children, no husband or wife, no body shape or anything will satisfy us in the way that our, our desires so deeply want that and in the way that we so deeply desire that. If God does bless us with any of those things, we should receive them as the good gifts that they are. We, we should enjoy them. We should relish them. We should praise God for them and we should be generous with them. But if we expect the, the material blessings, the earthly blessings, the things that God, that God does bless us with, if we expect those things to satisfy our eternal longings for joy, we'll be utterly let down by them and we'll destroy those things, we'll crush those things by our expectations of them. So if you get married and you think, well, this person is, you know, you, you know like Tom Cruise said and Jerry Maguire, you complete me, if we expect that 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 person's going to complete me, that, that this, is the end, this, is, this is how I'm happy forever, this person has provided me with forever bulletproof joy, we will crush that person with our expectations of them and we will be utterly let down by that person. Our desires are far too strong to be quenched by anything that we could find on earth. C.S. Lewis famously looked deep into his own eternal appetites and he found in them a reason for the existence of God. He said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In other words, our endless search for satisfaction and joy is evidence of the fact that there is an endless God Who is the answer to that? And we only have to look to our own lives and our own hearts to find proof of this. How many times have we thought, all I need is one more four-wheel drive accessory, and then I'll be forever happy. Like I just need a lift kit for my Triton, and then, then I won't need anything else in life. I'll be happy forever. Or if only I had just a better job. A job that I would be proud of to say to people, I I, I do this. If only I had more money, if if only I just got a pay rise, if only I was married, if only I had this, if only I had that, then I would be happy. Then I would not need anything else. And we all know how that goes. We might get that thing and then before, and we enjoy it, it's nice, and then before too long we're, we're seeking the next thing. Our desires are too Strong. It never satisfies us. And really, a Christian is just someone who has discovered that the wine has run out. A Christian is just someone who has discovered that the joy to be found in this world isn't enough to satisfy their eternal longings, that they were made for more, and they've discovered that Jesus is the answer. Friends, there is more joy to be found in Jesus than we could ever hope for. And we know this because when Jesus does provide the wine, John tells us that the six jars that were there held 20 to 30 gallons each. Now, I'm not too familiar with the American system of measurement, so I had to look up how much a gallon is. 20 to 30 gallons is roughly equivalent to anywhere between 76 to 114 liters. And there were six of them. So that would equal anywhere between 500 to 750 liters of wine, which if then distributed into standard wine bottles that are 700 mils each, we're looking at anywhere between 714 to 1,070 bottles of wine at this wedding. That's a lot of wine. (laughs) That's a lot of wine. I was tempted to go into a bottle and just count up and find out how many bottles they actually have there, but I don't know, that's like an entire bottle shop full of wine that Jesus creates here. And some scholars balk at this. They say, well, that's, that's way too much wine. There's no way that uh, Jesus would have made that much wine for a wedding in a small town like Cana. Like That's just way, way too much. I think that's actually the point, though. I think they looked at this and went, we're never going to get through this. There's more wine than we could ever know what to do with. more wine to poke a stick at. And I think that's the point, that Jesus provides for us more joy than we could ever have. He provides us joy, abundant joy. that we, we will never get to the point of him and be like, oh, I'm kind of, kind of done with him now. Like, if you get to the point and you kind of go, oh, I'm kind of done with Jesus, call a spade a spade. I just don't think you've been experiencing Jesus. I think you've been experiencing something else because you will not find the end of the joy that is to be found in Jesus. And so how does Jesus provide this joy? What, what is it? What is it about Jesus that provides us with this joy? Well, the answer, I think, is in uh, what I'm going to call the next point, that, joy is, that the joy that is found in religion is not strong enough. John tells us that the six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. And this is a, a really important detail, the, the purpose of these stone water jars. It's not just that there, was, there just happened to be six handy buckets nearby. This detail, the, the purpose of the water jars is crucial for understanding the significance of this passage. You see, God's law taught that God is holy and if you wanted to come into God's presence, if you wanted to have anything to do with Him, you had to be cleansed, you had to be purified, you had to be consecrated. You, you had to get yourself ready. You had to, And, and it was a detailed process. If you go back and you read the Torah and, and the, the purification laws that are throughout there, you will find that it is, it's complex and it's, it's detailed and it's really specific for specific things. And that's because God is holy it's not because he's finicky it's because he's holy it wasn't so much there to protect god it was there to protect us if you were to go and and meet someone famous like let's say that someone had arranged for you lunch with Albany, anthony albanese the prime minister of australia let's say that had happened and you had just finished the mowing and you took a bit longer and you were like oh i'm running late for lunch i'll just skip the shower You wouldn't do that, would you? Like, you would make it an absolute priority to make sure you showered and you scrub yourself clean and you put on your, your best, like, cologne or whatever it is for this particular meeting. Times that by about infinity and you've got kind of what it means to come into the presence of God. It's the same with God, just on an infinitely greater level. It's more than just having a shower because God is holy. We can't scrub our heart clean. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? That's the question that the Bible just keeps asking over and over again. Like if you look out for that question, like that question is from 1 Samuel. And that's just a neat way of summing it up. But that question comes over and over again. Not specifically, not explicitly But over and over again, who can come into the presence of the Lord? Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? If God is holy and we're sinners, who can possibly get close to Him? Because of our sin, we cannot come in. And so the purification laws of the Old Testament were given to God's people there to show that actually... Um, how they could draw near to God if they followed these laws, and, and, and that was really how they drew near um, closer and closer into the, uh, into the inner depths of the, of the tabernacle and into the inner depths of the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And they also reminded God's people of, of His holiness and their own sin. And all sorts of purification rituals and processes were prescribed, they usually involved some combination of a, cleaning, of a cleansing agent, so that would sometimes be water, sometimes that would be fire, sometimes that would be blood, and that would be a symbolic thing to, to symbolize um, the cleansing that was going on there. Um, the, the purification laws often required some kind of distance or time. So it might be that if you became impure, you would have to be outside of the, of the community of God's people for a time and, and for a, at a distance just to demonstrate the, the spectacular distance between us and God, between sinners and a holy God. And they also often required a sacrifice to remind us of the cost of restoration. Something or someone has to pay for us to be cleansed. These six stone water jars in this story represent that. The old order of how someone made amends for their impurity and came close to God. You see, Jesus is doing far more than just supplying wine. He, he didn't actually need the water jars to be filled. He could have used the air inside those empty jars and he could have turned that into wine. It wasn't just that these water jars were handy or nearby, it's that he was doing something significant and symbolic. By taking the water that was meant for purifying people from their sins and replacing it with wine, Jesus is showing that he's come to displace the old water, to replace the old system of purification. But he's not not replacing it by abolishing it, he's replacing it by fulfilling it. Jesus would be the way that mankind is cleansed and cleaned up and restored to be able to come into the presence of God. And Jesus does far more than just wash skin. He scrubs our hearts clean. He scrubs our our record of wrongdoing and sin squeaky clean. He removes our record of sin and wrongdoing. He makes us righteous. He makes us righteous. He purifies us. He takes away our sin from us. So that when we ask the age or question, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, a Christian can boldly declare, I can. Like that, That's true of you. If you're a Christian, you can say, oh, actually I can. When the the Bible asks that question, we can say we can come into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. Not because we did anything, not because we're special, not because we found some secret soap that got us perfectly clean. It's because we came to Jesus and he's the one who made us clean. We can't make ourselves clean. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might think that what Christianity is all about is, is people who have managed to find a way to get themselves clean. But it's not. Because we can't. We can't do that. If you think that's that what's true about Christian, Christianity, that's not true about me. I have not found a way to make myself clean, but I have come across the Savior who has made me clean. And there's nothing that I can do to, to make myself clean. No amount of religious activity is enough to get rid of those stains. No amount of being a good person or having the best intentions or going to church or, or giving to the poor or whatever. There's no amount of things that we can do that we, we think we might be able to build up on our resume. No amount of that stuff will actually cleanse us from the sin that has separated us from God. We cannot establish our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus has come to provide us with, the righteousness of God, to give us God's righteousness, to impute that to us. And the way that Jesus makes us clean is, is far superior. He tells us, in, we're told in verse 9, that when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after the people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. The old system, which seemed like good wine, was being replaced by the new and superior wine of Jesus Christ. Now, by simply coming to Jesus by faith, which simply means to come to Jesus with empty hands, we are made right before God. We are made right with before God by coming to Jesus by faith. Not coming to Jesus with things in our pockets, with good deeds in our pockets, with, with our resumes in our hands saying, look at how much I've done to, to, to earn this. Look at how much I've done to warrant this. No, we, we come going, I've got nothing to give. In fact, all I have, Jesus, is this sin that required you to go to the cross. That, that's all we come to him with. And if we come in that way, we we are coming in faith. We've got to let the joy and the relief, the relief of being made clean by Jesus, wash over us. Let Let that relief wash over you and cause your shoulders to relax. The burden has been lifted. Enjoy that. Enjoy it. Your sins have been paid for Enjoy that. Imagine you had a uni exam tomorrow. Um, I currently am not doing any study, but I remember what it's like to have a uni exam the next day. Some of you are studying right now. You know exactly what that feeling is like. You're very aware of that. You've got a uni exam tomorrow, and it's the big one. It's worth a lot, and if you don't pass this one, you're not going to pass this subject And you've been working really hard on studying. You've been really trying to do your absolute best, but you have no confidence at all about tomorrow's exam. You don't know anybody who's passed this exam. You're really terrified of this. And then in the afternoon, you get contacted by the lecturer. It's not a joke, it's not a hoax, but the lecturer contacts you and says, hey, just want you to let you know the exam has been cancelled. I've decided to give everybody 100%. How would you sleep that night? Wouldn't that just be wonderful? Like, you'd probably skip everywhere for that afternoon. You'd probably just be so excited. The world would suddenly smell like jasmine in October. It'd just be like, oh, this is, oh, look at the sun. Oh, there's, look how green the grass is. Everything's beautiful. Everything's wonderful. Because you're just so relieved that this, this test is not, you don't have to sit this test anymore. Now, that is not a perfect illustration. It has serious flaws to it, but it doesn't doesn't provide the comprehensive understanding of this because it's not that God has cancelled the test. It's that Jesus has passed the test for us. But it does demonstrate one thing, the relief that we are meant to feel that Jesus has passed this test for us. The most impossible test has not been cancelled, but passed on our behalf. Enjoy it. Let that wash over you. God wants us to experience the sweetness of joy, the sweetness of His love, the joy of being pardoned. He has pardoned pardoned us from our sin. Enjoy it. The relief of being made right by nothing that we have ever done. And He demonstrates this through the superior wine, the, the, the better wine. The offer of free grace, the righteousness of God made available for all. That Jesus came and he came and is he, perfectly pure. He paid the ultimate cost. He, he died on our behalf, in our place, instead of us. That should have been us, but it wasn't. It was him passing the test on our behalf. And this brings us to the final point, that Jesus is the source of superior and unending joy. We'll go back now to this strange interaction between Jesus and his mom. It's hard to know exactly what Mary was expecting of him there in this moment. Like maybe she had come to rely on his uh, resourcefulness, his ingenuity, like she just knew that he'd be able to do something about this. Or maybe, and there's some scholars, I think this, and I'd never thought of this, but maybe she saw him arrive at this wedding. He's been away for a while. He's come back and he's got a, a group of disciples following him. And maybe it's clicked in her mind ah, his time has come. Regardless of, of what she actually is expecting to, him to do, we know that she wants him to do something. And Jesus replies to her in verse 4 He says, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, this is confusing. And a little bit concerning. Um, I don't talk to my mum like this. It sounds like Jesus is being a bit harsh to his mum. Like I've never called my mother woman. Um, It also kind of sounds that (laughs) certain things would happen to my ears if I called my mother woman Um, by my father. He would do something about me there. It sounds like Jesus is being harsh to his mum. It also sounds like he's a little bit reluctant to do this miracle. There's a couple of things I think we can say about this. Firstly, the, the word there, woman, um, it's actually a fairly rare word, and it doesn't have a really good translation in English. Um, he's not being harsh or disrespectful, but he's also not being overly warm. It's not like If your translation says, dear woman, that's probably a bit too warm. It's a polite and formal address, and, and uh, the closest we have is something like, ma'am. Like what has this to do with me, ma'am? And he's been polite, he's not being rude, but he is creating a bit of distance there. He's creating a bit of distance there, and what I think he's doing is that he's making it clear that although he respects and obviously loves his mother, he needs to be obedient to the will of his heavenly father and not to mankind, including his own mother. He came to earth with a mission that will be not diverted by the will of man, not even from his own mum. What is his mission? It's what he says next. He says, my hour has not yet come. The hour that Jesus is talking about there is his death. And it's not that he thought that he was about to die in that hour then and there, but by performing this sign... He was pulling the trigger on a mission that would not stop until it reached the cross. His first sign here was the ready, set, go of his ministry. And from here on, the cross would come into sharp focus and would become inevitable. What I'm pinched, though, about this passage, this verse, this saying of his, is that he doesn't say, the hour has not yet come that he says my hour has not yet come he owned it this was his hour this is the reason why he came this is his purpose he came to die he came to fulfill the words of isaiah 53 it says he himself yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. This is Isaiah prophetically speaking forward into the future of how the Messiah is going to be treated. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him And we are all healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Friends, the source of our joy is in the fact that God loves us so much that he sent his son to endure all of that so that we didn't have to so that he could have us. See, God was not obligated to die for us. The only obligation really on God was his love for us, which he has lavished upon us. Our joy in Jesus is in the fact that we are loved like that. You see, if you're, if you're anything like me, you're an expert in all of the reasons why you think God could never love you. You're an expert at that. If the matter were taken to court, if you're like me, you'd be able to convince the jury of all the reasons why God could never love you. Or if there was a library and every single book on every single shelf was titled something like Why God Could Never Love You, you'd be the chief librarian. You would know where everything, you'd be an expert in all of it. And I heard someone say this week that you've got to fire your inner lawyer. You've got to take petrol to the library and burn that library down. This is how we experience the superior and unending joy of Jesus Christ. We need to drink the best wine which has been given to us in abundance. We need to take the reality of the gospel... That God loves us so much that He has made a way for us to be made right with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, as an act of His perfect and wonderful grace. And we need to speak that into our hearts. We need to drink that into our hearts. How easy is it, is it for us to be so familiar with our sin and our feelings of guilt and our shame and our embarrassment at our sin? And I don't want you to misunderstand me That's not a bad thing. It's a mercy to us that God would reveal our brokenness to us. God intends this for us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to, to show us the reality of our sin. But we mustn't stop there. We absolutely mustn't stop there. We must let the Holy Spirit complete His work. We must let the Holy Spirit take us beyond our sin to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we must let Him press the gospel into our hearts. We need to press the good news of Jesus into our hearts the same way that you press pastry into a pie dish. Press it into your hearts. God loves me. Not because of anything I've done. God loves you. Not because of anything you've done. Not because there's there's something about you that God loves. Because if that was the truth, that wouldn't be good news. If God loved me because there was something I could do for him, then I could... I'd probably I'd stop doing it. God's love for me consists in His loveliness, not in mine. And here's how we get joy in Jesus: it's not about putting on a happy face. It's not going kind of going. Okay, I guess I should be happy. Okay, happy joy in Jesus, awesome. And you hold it your best until you get in the car and go home from church on Sunday. That's not it. That's not the message today. If that's what you've been hearing, I'm sorry, I've miscommunicated that or you've misheard me. But that is not it at all. It is not put on a happy face and fake it till you make it. Joy in Jesus comes from looking long and hard at the reality of sin, of our sin. And then, and this is crucial, then looking long and hard at the reality of God's loving grace that has been given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's to look at our sin long and hard enough until we realize that we are, uh, our sin has made us absolutely repugnant to God. And then it's to look at Jesus long and hard enough until we realize that everything that we've been told, everything that we have read in his word about his love and his mercy and his grace is perfectly true of us. Look at him long enough until you realize, oh, this is actually true about me. His love is actually for me. Do you feel unlovable? Like you might think to yourself, how could someone like him ever love someone like me? You're wrong. Look to Jesus Christ. Do you feel useless? You think think to yourself, I have no purpose. But you're wrong. Look to Jesus. Do you feel like a failure? Do you think, "I've, I've gone too far and I've failed too many times. I've exhausted his mercy. You're wrong. Look to Jesus Christ. And here's the surprising thing. When we look to Jesus Christ, when we're really looking at him, we'll discover that he's been looking at us the whole time. And in his eyes is love and faithfulness and grace and kindness and mercy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life.